Welcome back to Refocused, a podcast all about attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. My name is Lindsay Gensel, and today we're talking all about sleep and the ADHD brain. Ocean One, one of the settings from the sleep sound machine my boyfriend got me for my birthday in March. And yes, I asked for it. We've only been using it a couple of weeks, and I should probably knock on wood before even saying this, but I've noticed I'm waking up less throughout the night, which is great and something I hope continues because sleep and I have a complicated relationship right now. We have for a while, although it hasn't always been this way. In fact, I remember when I was in high school and even early on in college when I could not only sleep through the night, but sleep in, you know, to crazy times of the day like 10 o'clock in the morning. And my older sisters, who were starting to realize that the sleep problems our parents had were starting to show up in their own lives, you know, it's that point in life where you realize the power of genetics for better or worse. I remember them saying to me, one day you aren't going to sleep. So enjoy it while you can. And while those days showed up a lot quicker than I had anticipated. So what does it take to get good sleep? And why is it so important? Well, we're going to talk about that today and then next week too. And we'll explore why getting adequate sleep can be both more important for people with ADHD and at the same time more difficult for us. See, the frustrating thing is, we'll never know the actual statistics of how many people with ADHD also struggle with getting good, healthy sleep, because we'll never know how many people actually have ADHD. But I do know I'm in good company when it comes to sleep problems simply from the conversations we've had on this podcast, like the one I had with Emily Chen back in October for Refocus Together. I found a therapist. I'm very lucky in that my therapist really quickly caught on to the fact that I had some executive dysfunction going on. A couple of sessions in, she also discovered that my sleep hygiene was abysmal. And so I spent that session being like, wait, so you're not supposed to like read in bed for long periods of time and... That times are real, really, they're, they're not fake. But during this session, just in passing, she said, oh, you know, people with ADHD often have sleep problems. And, you know, I just completely ignored that. That didn't even like register in my brain. So I got in the car to go home and was just like, la, da, da, da. It's like, wait, why did my therapist say that? And then so I like Google search ADHD on my phone and was just like, went, went down the list. I'm just like, nah, no, nah, nah, nah. I try so hard to, nah, mm-mm. nope, not me. Isn't it funny how what we need to learn doesn't seem to land, regardless of how in our face it is, until we're ready to hear it? Emily's hardly alone. Sleep and the concern over how sleep affects a person with ADHD, I don't feel like it comes up in the first wave of symptoms you learn about after you're diagnosed. And yeah, there's a lot of things to learn about when you're first diagnosed. But something that has such an impact on your life, like sleep, you think it would maybe be brought up. Maybe you'd get a pamphlet or something when you leave the doctor's office. 
Luckily, there is work being done to increase the awareness on how ADHD can impact sleep. Organizations like CHAD and Attitude Magazine. I even hosted a webinar on sleep last fall for ADHD Online that we're going to share bits and pieces of over the next two episodes. And I'm honored and really excited that Refocus gets to play a small part in increasing the awareness over how big of an issue this actually is for the neurodiverse community. Because sleep is important. All caps, underlined in bold, with so many exclamation points. According to the National Institutes of Health, sleep deficiency can be incredibly detrimental to both our brains and our bodies. It is linked to a variety of chronic health issues, including heart disease, kidney disease, high blood pressure, diabetes, stroke, obesity, and depression. Sleep deprivation is also one of the leading causes for car accidents and is linked to an increased risk for injury in adults, teens, and children. Add in ADHD and it is a whole other ballgame. In his January 2023 piece for Attitude Magazine, ADHD and Sleep Problems, This is Why You're Always Tired, Dr. William Dodson said because sleep problems tend to show up later in life, it has made it really difficult to fit issues with sleep into the diagnostic criteria set in the DSM for ADHD. And I mean, I know I was diagnosed at almost 35, but I remember having a really hard time as a kid staying in bed, waking up constantly from really scary, realistic dreams, sleepwalking, all things that I still deal with in life. And while I'm not a sleep expert, I'm guessing those early behaviors would have raised some flags. But again, like so much with ADHD, we didn't know. For people with ADHD, finding a healthy balance with sleep can be a complicated equation. And it's something I dove into with Dr. Stephen Lang last year during that webinar I mentioned that we hosted together, Is Your ADHD Making You Count Sheep to Fall Asleep? Here's how I set things up for Dr. Lang. Take ADHD out of the equation. When we look at sleep and the magnitude that it has on our life, what are we talking about? Consider this your two-minute crash course on the importance. Sleep is essential. We need sleep. And there are a number of theories why. And they're all theories because we don't really have enough knowledge to be able to say definitively all the things that sleep does for us. One of the things it does for us is conserves energy. And we're not expending energy while we're sleeping. The brain is very alive and very active while we're sleeping. We think of it as rest, but the brain is still working. And it's working on consolidating memory and on consolidating learning. We use dream sleep to work our emotional lives and emotional struggles that we're having. And we also need sleep as a way of repairing our organs, including our brain. Our brain kind of washes itself of toxins while we sleep. There are a couple of mechanisms that take place while we're sleeping that just is like a wash cycle for our brains. And without that, our brains are living in a toxic environment. So sleep is essential. And all problems with sleep are really sleep-wake problems because what we notice not only is whether or not we're sleeping at night, but how awake and alert we are during the day and whether we're able to function effectively during the day. And biologically, we're set up to be night sleepers and we're set up to be active during the day. We're diurnal as opposed to bats, which are nocturnal. Bats are hunting during the night, sleeping during the day. We're hunting during the day, sleeping during the night. The daily rhythms of light and dark really regulate our sleep. And there's a piece of our brain that reacts to light input through our eyes. 
It's not our regular visual system where we're able to recognize people and, and things and letters and numbers. It's a separate visual system that just registers light and dark. And when it's dark, that visual system and the little piece of brain tissue called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, where it ends up, when it's dark, that piece of tissue allows us to produce melatonin, which is the sleep hormone. And when it's light out, that piece of brain tissue suppresses melatonin. And that's what keeps us from sleeping when it's light out. And we function best when we're aligned with the natural cycles of light and dark. Dr. Lang studied psychology at Lehigh University before receiving his Ph.D. from Fordham University. And before earning his doctorate, he worked as a school psychologist in New York City and New Jersey. Since then, he's worked in hospitals, prisons, addiction treatment centers, as well as in his own private practice. And he and I, and likely you, since you're listening to this podcast, all have something in common. I have ADHD. I knew that when I was maybe six or seven years old. I didn't know what it was called. The adults didn't know what was going on with me either. They just knew they were frustrated. I knew I was frustrating them. And my journey to becoming a psychologist had to do with understanding that the adults did not know what to do with me. They did not know how to help me. And I was going to find a way to to become an adult who understood and could help. Obviously, there's so much for us to talk about when it comes to sleep and ADHD, but I also thought this might be a great time to go back a little bit. We're always told sleep is important, but how many of us actually take that to heart? And when it comes to getting good sleep, what are we working against and what should we be aware of? Well, if you start by looking back at how we sleep, a lot has changed. I'll let Dr. Lang set the scene for you. So settle back and imagine life in a previous century, kind of little house on the prairie. You have no artificial light, no light bulbs, no electricity. So you slept during the night and you woke up at dawn. So you were already in early morning aligned with the natural cycle of day and night with light and darkness. You worked and expended physical effort and mental effort all day, except for lunch. When it was dusk, you came in, you ate dinner, and you had dim light, candlelight or lamplight or the hearth. As those burned down, you would quiet yourselves down. The family would, would sew or read or talk or, or, or sing or play music. And it was a very kind of settled, relaxed time. And then when the, when all the lights were extinguished. No more embers. The candles burned out. The lamps burned out. You went to bed. How many people do you think in that kind of agricultural world in maybe the 1800s, let's say 1850, had sleep problems? I am sure that there was no insomnia. Why? Because people were aligned with the natural cycle of, of light and darkness They were also working hard all day. They were expending calories. They were expending energy. They were moving their bodies and they were using their minds. Now, let me ask you, when was the last time you experienced that? For most of us, that's just never going to be something that ever happens. We live in a very different world. First, we live in a -a 24-hour-a-day world. You can do anything you want 24 hours a day. They used to call New York City the city that never sleeps. 
Now, none of us ever sleep. You know, there are people who literally sleep with their phones on their chest, waiting for that phone call from work. And unless you're a neurosurgeon or a trauma surgeon, I'm not sure why you would want to do that. We can order food at three in the morning. We can go online and talk to other people at three in the morning. We can trade stocks at three in the morning. We can do our banking at three in the morning. So we are not aligned with the day-night cycle. Electronic communication devices help us do that. They're ever-present. They're on our minds, even if we're not using them. We know where they are, if they're on our nightstand, in our pocket, wherever, and they are interrupting our thinking constantly. We work in artificial light. So while in an agricultural society in the 1850s, people had sunlight on their faces, which is what we're adapted to, what we evolved to use to keep us awake. In artificial light, we're never really in full sunlight, and we're never really in full darkness. As a result, we are in perpetual twilight, which is why in two in the afternoon after lunch, and, and your circadian rhythms are kind of at a low point in general. You begin to feel tired between two and four in the afternoon. You have not had natural sunlight, and you may not have moved your body. If you have a very physical job, you are much better off than a job like mine, where I sit and I listen and I talk and I read and I write. If you're sedentary, it is very, very difficult to expend the energy and have the movement necessary to fall asleep. If you're a child, that means you need recess. If you are an adult, it means you need recess. If you eat lunch at your desk, if you don't get up and walk outside your building, you are undermining your sleep that night. Everybody needs recess. Everybody needs light on their face during the day. And everybody needs some movement during the day. At night, because we have artificial light, our light is no different than it is during the day. So unless we go to some effort to dim our lights during the evening, there's no difference for us between dusk and mid-afternoon. So we want to begin to dim our houses or homes or apartments as we get closer to bedtime. We also have to wind down and become less active or calm. Okay, so I go to work, I come home, I haven't seen my family all day, I haven't seen my dog or my cat all day. So now I'm really excited and we're playing and we're doing things. And when I when my kids were small, we were going to football practice and soccer practice. You know, we were getting all charged up between dinner and bedtime, and then it's harder to fall asleep. In a perfect world, between dinner and bedtime, you want to become less active, you want to become calmer, do not use that time for, for conflict, do not argue with your kids about their schoolwork between dinner and bedtime, do not argue with your spouse or your partner between dinner and bedtime, do all that kind of stuff when it's light out. As I've mentioned, there's a lot for us to explore when it comes to sleep. And the unfortunate reality is we aren't going to get to all of it in two podcast episodes, regardless of how hard I try. But we've started the conversation and we're going to continue talking about it. But I struggled with this idea that I had to have everything figured out before I shared any of it with you, which is another lovely ADHD conundrum you've likely dealt with yourself. But in order to keep moving forward on the topic of sleep and ADHD, we actually need to go back. Back to that wash cycle Dr. Lang mentioned when he started explaining the importance of sleep. 
The wash cycle has to do with three different parts. One is our brains are bathed in cerebral spinal fluid. And when you sleep, the spaces between the neurons, our brain cells, kind of open up and it allows for a freer flow of cerebral spinal fluid. And that actually washes away toxins. The second is our blood flow increases. And that kind of does the same thing. And then the third part is we burn a lot of sugar. So our brain is working. That seems to be part of the wash cycle too. That activity is somehow connected to the cleanup that the blood is taking away toxins and the cerebral spinal fluid is taking away toxins. You guys, I am very intrigued by this wash cycle. Not to make this all about me, although I'm fairly confident many of you will also be able to relate to this, but here's what concerns me about this wash cycle and one of the reasons why I'm so fascinated by it. I wake up a lot throughout the night to go to the bathroom, have a drink of water, contemplate all of my poor choices in life. So it had me wondering. So let's say our brain is a dishwasher, and I know that if I start my dishwasher, it goes through different cycles to get to the end. But I know that if I open the dishwasher midway through, it stops there. So do we know, like, does the brain pick up where it left off, or does it start over and everything that was missed the night before doesn't get, doesn't get cleaned, if so to speak? That is a great question. And when I used to teach psychology to graduate students, when somebody asked a question like that, I would say, that's an awesome question. Can you come back next week and give us the answer? I can tell you how the wash cycle works, but I can't tell you. I don't know the answer to that question. That's an excellent question. Challenge accepted. Surprising no one, I am still all about those brownie points. And here's where we're going to put a pin in my conversation with Dr. Lang. Just for a minute, we'll come back to Stephen during next week's episode when we're going to spend pretty much the entire show talking specifically about ADHD and sleep. But in order to answer this very important question, I have to bring in another sleep expert. And as we started plotting how we were going to share all this incredible information with you guys, we thought, why don't we take this opportunity and dive into just sleep for a little bit? Sleep feels like one of those things that we just do as humans, but I don't know that many of us actually go back and ever kind of dive into the importance of sleep or why humans need sleep. So consider this next portion of today's episode as a little workshop I think we can all benefit from. To find the answer to my wash cycle dishwasher conundrum, I connected with the team at Boston Medical Center and was introduced to Dr. Sanford Auerbach. Dr. Auerbach is the director of Boston Medical Center's Sleep Disorders Center, an American Academy of Sleep Medicine accredited facility as well as an associate professor of neurology, psychiatry, and behavioral neurosciences at Boston University Chobanian and Avedesian School of Medicine. I'm curious about the sleep cycle and kind of this idea of the sleep wash and what is happening with the brain. And the question that I have about it is, one, what's happening during that process? And then let's say you're somebody who wakes up a lot, I get up to go to the bathroom. When I go back to sleep, does my body pick back up where it left off? Or are you starting over? Or or do we know what's happening in those scenarios? Yeah. So there are a couple different things. When you get up in the middle of the night for whatever reason and come back to sleep, it's not like you necessarily pick up exactly where you left off, but pretty much you can think of it as being a more or less a complete process by the end of the night. There is this balance back and forth of the different stages of sleep that people go through and the processes that go through it. And you can have a little awakening here or there. In fact, most people do have 
short awakenings through the course of the night. As I mentioned before, they may not always remember them, but they go through the course of the night and, and they're just not always aware of them. Some people some people may be too obsessed to buy it, and if they have a short awakening, they'll stay up the rest of the night worried about the fact that they woke up. So I, I usually think of it as a process through the course of the night. It's not necessarily the case that if you wake up in the middle of a dream and you go back to sleep, it's not necessarily the case that you're going to go right back to the exact spot in that dream to finish up. And perhaps sometimes people can do that. And there is this, it is interesting that during the course of sleep, there are these active processes that go on to clear away some of the substances that have accumulated in the brain, the sort of the waste products of the brain that have accumulated through the course of the day and while you're active and doing things. And then there's a clearance system that's built in that's particularly active at night when we're asleep. And it is thought to be very important to our normal daytime function, and not only for our daytime function, but also perhaps to play a role in the later development of problems, disorders like Alzheimer's disease, which is a fairly common disorder, and other similar kinds of disorders. There's a buildup over time of certain elements, certain toxic elements, or thought to be toxic elements, that will accumulate over time, but there's an active clearing process that goes on at night while we're asleep. Perhaps more stages, more in certain stages of sleep than other stages of sleep, but certainly it's something that goes on through the course of the night. So sleep is very important. All right. So a little relief for those of us who agonize over the amount of time awake we see on our smartwatches every morning. Dr. Auerbach echoed a lot of what Dr. Lang shared regarding the importance of sleep. And I'll be honest, when he talked about all of the work that goes on while we're sleeping, I don't quite know that I knew that, or if I knew that, that I took it into account when thinking about how I view sleep in my life. Despite being snuggled up in a comfy bed, wearing things that feel good against our skin, sleep is not a passive process. There's a lot of oxygen repair that goes on throughout the night, and what Dr. Auerbach referred to as offline information processing, which helps us function better throughout the day. He also added, and this is something that plays off of what Dr. Lang talked about when we look back at the history of sleep, sleeping at night was also at one point a protective mechanism. Think about it. You used to not be able to function at night, and you definitely wouldn't be going out to do stuff moving around at night. It was dangerous. You wouldn't go wandering around into the forest in the middle of the night. And so if you think about it that way, sleeping has helped humans stay out of trouble. So what are some of the key factors involved when it comes to falling asleep? And how much sleep do we need? And you may have popped a melatonin before to speed up the falling asleep process, but did you actually know we produce our own melatonin? I dove into all of that during my time chatting with Dr. Auerbach, and we're going to get to that right now, wrapping up with the perfect segue into next week's episode, looking at the connection between having ADHD and struggling with sleep. to talk about falling asleep, which I think for some people, it either comes really easily or it's terrible. You know, there are a couple of key things of falling asleep. One of them is sleep deprivation, that we wake up in the morning, we're factored during the day, we accumulate all the sleep deprivation, and it's a translate into a sleep drive. So by the end of the day, when we're ready to go to sleep, we have this built up tendency to want to fall asleep. We're limited in how much we can stay awake without sleeping. So that's the one factor, that sleep drive. How much sleep we need to function normally, it certainly changes as we get older. Obviously, infants, young children, a lot more sleep. But as we get older, we reach this 
plateau about how much we sleep. And there's some variation from individual to individual. And that may even vary according to the time of the year, cycle of the month, perhaps. But more or less, we have that set need. The second thing is timing. So there's a timing system involved in sleep. And we have a built-in clock, a circadian clock. And sleep is sometimes thought of as being a circadian system, meaning that we wake up in the morning and then go to sleep at night, and then 24 hours later, we're awake again. It's built on this 24-hour clock that alternates between this wakeful and sleep primitive times. If you try to sleep at times when your clock is not geared up for it, then it's much more difficult to sleep. Just like it's a little more difficult to stay awake when your clock is in, the, in that downside. It's much what happens to people who are jet-lagged. You know, their optimal times to jet lag. In fact, jet lag is exactly that. We fool our clock because we suddenly make a couple jumps in time zones and we're trying to function in a different time zone than what our clock is still at. There's a lag time before that catches up. So we want to be able to get the timing system down. Now, some people find it easier to sleep during the day than others, but by and large, we have another bias. The third factor is you want to be able to have your body ready to relax. To transition into sleep, you need to relax. And there are so many factors that go into that. What we eat and drink can play a role in this. So the caffeine, just as an example, will make it more difficult to sleep. And again, there's a lot of individual variability. We want to make sure the sleeping environment is proper for sleep. In general, most people, it's the slightly cool area, cool environment, free of extraneous stimulation. You want to keep it low. and You want to make sure that sleeping area is removed from the hub of all the chaos that goes on in your day. And again, there's a lot of individual variation, what makes you relaxed. You have to tailor it to the individual. So the three key things, one is having that sleep drive in sync. Number two is having the timing system right. And number three is being able to adequately relax to transition into sleep. And certainly there's a balance with all of these three factors. And now I'm assuming that we're not dealing with other kinds of medical issues that may intervene with all of this. And there are other medical conditions, people have pain problems and so forth that may interfere with this. I'm assuming that's not the case. And that the patient doesn't also have other sleep disorders. Then we deal with in the sleep clinic, we see people have very specific sleep disorders that may limit or make it difficult to fall asleep. Restless leg syndrome, for instance, and other kinds of disorders that we see. When we're talking about restless sleep, is there a way to define it or is it something that is very broad and can be different for every single person? Yes, I think it can be very broad when people talk about restless sleep. We see all sorts of things in the clinic about what gets defined as restless sleep. And sometimes I have to confess, when I see patients, I always ask them about their sleep patterns, when they fall asleep, when they wake up in the night and so forth, and get as much of that information as we can. Yet I also know that as individuals, we're not always very good at knowing exactly how much we sleep. And we see those mistakes all the time. We see people who you know, who think they sleep soundly, and yet when we look at their sleep studies, they have many multiple awakenings throughout the night that they just don't remember. Some of it's as simple as the fact that you have to wake up for five or six minutes to remember that you woke up. But we also see the other part of it as well. We'll see people who come in and don't think they sleep at all. And then when we look at their sleep measurements, it may not be totally normal sleep, but they sleep for five or six hours. The other day, so somebody who came up to me and said, oh, you can have to repeat the study. I said, what do you mean repeat the study? She said, I only slept 15 minutes. That's all, maybe 20. And then we looked at the sleep study. And in fact, she had slept five, six hours through the course of the night. So people's perceptions of how much they sleep always has to be taken into consideration. And it's hard to predict. 
that's sometimes why we do those sleep studies. And so restless sleep means a lot of different things to different people. And it's their perception. And in fact, this is one of the reasons why when we address people's sleep problems and sleep needs, I'm much more impressed by how they function during the day. That's the key. If you get enough sleep that you're functioning at your optimal level during the day, that's what the goal is. You mentioned waking up and needing to be awake long enough to realize that you've woken up in the middle of the night. But waking up in the morning can be difficult, especially if you're someone who hits the snooze button, if you don't have a regular routine in the morning. So what is it about that morning time with waking up that is so important and so critical to not only establishing routines, but as you mentioned, to help you feel good throughout the day? Some people are more morning people and some people are more evening people. That's very hard to undo. Yet within that context, it's adherence to those things that we've already talked about. Making sure that you have a regular sleep pattern, that you figure out for yourself, how many hours of sleep do you need to function? For some people, it may be six. Some people, maybe seven, half, eight hours. So it can vary a little bit. So how much sleep do you need, number one? Number two, what is your clock? Now, this can vary from person to person, and we can actually do things to help modify our clock. Having a regular pattern is probably key. I'm not going to bed at 9 o'clock one night and 2 a.m. the next night. And as much as you can, adhere to a regular routine schedule. And number three, that key that I mentioned before about making sure there's an adequate amount of relaxation when you go to sleep and separate yourself from the day, from all those stresses of the day. Stress is a key thing. Stress is good for the business. It's good for the sleep business. Not very good for people's sleep. I think we've always hoped that if we got a bad night's sleep the night before, that we'd make up for it. And so I'm wondering, what is the answer to that? Can you ever get yourself out of sleep debt or are you starting over every single day? It used to be thought that for every hour that you lost, you have to pay back that hour. But I think our bodies are a little more efficient in terms of being able to build it up. It is true, though, that our sleep debt is cumulative. If you're behind from one night by an hour, a couple hours, it's not like that goes away the next day or the next two days. You are a bit behind until you try to sleep some more. Most typically, that's why the this typical sort of pattern that a lot of people follow is during the course of the week, they do cheat a little bit and short themselves on some sleep during the week and then may catch up on a weekend or something when they have the opportunity. And that's reflexive of that. That debt needs to be payback, maybe not necessarily in full, but certainly you have to make some allowances for that. I want to ask about technology because a few things that you've mentioned, jet lag, the introduction of flights. We can talk about even electricity, being able to have lights on at night and not being connected to the sun setting or the sun coming up. We have much more flexibility with that. And then, of course, technology, phones, our computers, being able to watch things at home and stay up late. How have you seen the advancing of technology and how sleep problems have changed throughout your career? They're tied into each other. I've always thought that one of the things that really spurs on a lot of sleep, there are certain sleep disorders that we see that are perhaps independent of the technology, like some of the sleep breathing disorders. Sleep apnea is a very common disorder that we see, although that's also probably related somewhat to lifestyle. As people, as people gain weight, there's greater tendency to develop those types of problems. And one of the things about our technology is that with the advances in technology seems for perhaps for a variety of reasons, seems to increase in the average weight of the population and therefore increases the sleep apnea that we see. The other part is things we've been talking about all along here, which is that we're enabled and when we're enabled, people take advantage of it either 
one way or the other, and people stay up later. They have more things to do that they can do at night, and people do that. Even more so than that, it's thought that perhaps another role is the kind of light even that we use. That's why people are very concerned about the blue light, which will affect this clock system and perhaps make it more difficult for some people at least to fall asleep easily at night. So it's the amount of light and the kinds of light that we were exposed to, not just the day, but at night as well. And it gets to both ends, both at night and in the morning time. And so it's interesting, as powerful as it is, there are certain things, this whole discussion about there's a problem between daylight savings and daylight saving time and daylight standard time and the changes in the clocks and so forth, that too has a major impact on health that oftentimes is overlooked. And it's why some people are very interested in trying to abolish those clock changes. So the clock changes, the light we're exposed to, you mentioned the jet lag, you know, that's a fairly modern concept of being able to travel that many time zones in such a quick time that your clock can't keep up. And the whole thing, all of this in some ways builds up and stresses a major issue in all of our sleep problems. I want to ask about melatonin because... It's something my mom introduced me to forever ago, and it was one of those things where it was like, hi, this will help you sleep. So I would take five milligrams at night, and it does help me calm down, and I have, knock on wood, pretty decent sleep right now. What is melatonin to begin with? And then how does taking a supplement help some people at night? So melatonin is a very interesting substance. It's We produce our own melatonin in our body and, and is very much involved in our sleep system in a couple different ways. It's involved in this back and forth of the circadian rhythm that I mentioned before, the clock. And at night, presumably with the darkness and as we fall asleep, there's an increased production in melatonin. And then in the morning, perhaps related to light exposure, activities, and a bunch of other things, it starts to disappear. So our melatonin is naturally produced in our brains, and it's involved in two ways. Some of the melatonin can affect this clock system, and it can also just help promote sleep. So it has those two sorts of mechanisms. It's in general, well, like any other thing, for some people it may have some side effects, but in general, it's thought to be relatively safe. And in some people, it works very well. Now, it's interesting, it doesn't work for everybody when they take it, but some patients that we see who can take some melatonin, it sounds like you're one of them, does very well with it, and it's not been a problem, and, and take advantage of that. It's difficult. It's one of those things that you can just go, you don't need a prescription for it. And so there's no incentive a lot of times to do those pivotal trials, those clinical trials to get on top of how well it works, why it works, who it works on more than others, because a lot of the funding isn't tied to it. If it was a proprietary thing and if it were much more expensive, there'd be more money involved in funding to help spear on some of that research. It's interesting. The people where it works very easily, oftentimes we don't see them because they don't come in. That's a great segue because I wanted to know what should prompt somebody to reach out to a sleep expert or to pursue a sleep study? If there's a suspicion that they're having difficulties with their sleep, and there are two pieces to that. One is if they're having difficulties falling asleep and staying asleep and getting an adequate night of sleep. When I say adequate enough sleep, that you're functioning optimally during the day. And that's the number one key. Now, there are there's one potential exception to that. There are some people who have the sleep-related breathing disorder, and they think they're sleeping. From their perception, they're sleeping well. The major culprit there is something called obstructive sleep apnea, 
in very simple terms, what happens is when your muscles relax and so forth at night, the airway tends to collapse. There's oftentimes there's vibrations as you're breathing in and out. So there's a lot of noise, which is snoring. And then there's disruptions in the breathing through the night. And it's interesting. Some of our patients come in and they come in because they're very tired and they're sleepy. They can't get enough sleep and they're dozing off inappropriately during the day. Some of our patients come in because they have very loud snoring. And so the bed partner chases them in or some combination of those things. It also, if not managed properly, is thought to be a risk factor for developing other medical situations. And I think that over the years, physicians have become much more aware of these other situations. And so they're more likely to refer you in to a first sleep study if they see the development of some medical problems, or at least be suspicious of a sleep-related breathing disorder. So the two major sources of patients that we see, one of the sleep-related breathing disorders, the obstructive sleep apnea, and the other are the people who have insomnia. The insomnia patients usually get to see us on their own accord because they don't feel good during the day. And most of the time, if somebody sleeps, say, five hours a night, but feels great during the day and functions fine and has no problems during the day, they don't come to see us. It's only the people who sleep five hours at night and don't feel good during the day that come to see us. That's the key. I want to ask, and I know it's not your area of expertise, but the podcast is about ADHD. And one of the things that I've noticed now since my diagnosis two years ago is that the exhaustion I felt middle of the day was probably tied to the lack of dopamine in my brain and not necessarily the fact that I was sleeping terribly because I haven't changed really much in my sleep routine. And now that I'm properly medicated, I can make it through the day. And so I'm curious when we talk about sleep issues and other factors playing a role. Have you seen anything with ADHD? Do you have patients who come in? Is this something that, again, going off of the melatonin, it feels like we just don't know a lot? I think that the link between sleep and ADHD is maybe more than even you suspect, perhaps. And then we see this a little bit more in children, some children certainly, who become sleep-deprived, and either by virtue of not having the chance to sleep enough or by having some other sleep disorder that makes their sleep more inefficient. One of the ways in which that can manifest is in a disorder that looks like ADHD. Sleep deprivation can trigger that kind of response in patients. And so sleep deprivation and ADHD do in some ways overlap a little more. Another interesting thing that I've seen over the years, there's a particular disorder that we see where patients develop excessive sleepiness. In other words, they do get a good night of sleep, yet during the day, they're still sleepy. And they call them central disorders of hypersomnia, where people just need more sleep. One's called narcolepsy or idiopathic hypersomnia. But so I've seen several patients over the years, usually young adults, where they come in because of the sleep issue and we diagnose them and they have narcolepsy. But they also, interestingly enough, have been diagnosed with ADHD as children. That's always been intriguing. And oftentimes the problem is that the treatment for one overlaps with the treatment for the other. You have these two disorders. One comes off as hyperactivity, one comes off as sleepiness. And oftentimes wonder, what is the exact connection? And it may be a mixture of different things, but is it they really had that narcolepsy all along? And it was just mislabeled as ADHD? Was it that they're just both caused by similar problems? It's a very interesting relationship between the two, but it's something that we oftentimes encounter. Last thing I want to ask, when we talk about sleep and the importance it plays in our lives, where are you most concerned with where things are headed or what we're not addressing. Yeah, I always think of sleep as there being two parts to that. One, it seems to me that the one thing I've mentioned several times is 
the role of stress. And the thing about sleep is that that doesn't seem to be getting any better. Life doesn't seem to be becoming less stressful as time goes by. And that has a direct impact on sleep. I can tell in our clinic when different world stressors come and go, the complaints of insomnia start to spike. And the, the second part, which I think is very closely related, I don't think that we still don't pay enough attention to sleep. I think physicians are starting, slowly starting perhaps to become more attuned to it. But oftentimes I think in the medical profession, not enough attention is paid to sleep and not enough energy and not enough resources are devoted to make sure that people sleep well. And it affects everything. And the thing that concerns me is not enough focus is placed on it sometimes. So my major takeaways from my convos with Dr. Lang and Dr. Auerbach are this. Our brains are actually very busy at night, and one of my jobs as the owner of said brain is to get things set up so it can be as productive as possible. That includes getting more natural light on my face, having a routine that includes relaxation, and probably not mindless scrolling on my phone, and reducing the amount of stress in my life. I'll be honest, I didn't know sleep was so much work. I'm truly so appreciative of both Dr. Lang and Dr. Auerbach for sharing their time and expertise with us on Refocused, and we're going to hear from both of them again next week as we continue the conversation on sleep and ADHD. We'll talk about the different stages of sleep, the importance of sleep hygiene, and why we should start creating our own. Don't feel bad if you don't have your sleep hygiene on lockdown because like Emily, mine is also abysmal. And we'll dive further into the importance of getting outside during the day. Dr. Lang even shares his prescription for good sleep, and I'm guessing it might surprise a lot of you. In the meantime, if you're a person with ADHD who has figured out this whole sleep hygiene, nighttime routine part of adulting, I would love to hear what works for you and share it on the next episode. Super simple. Send me an email, message me on social, record a voice memo on your phone, and carry your pigeon it on over or email it. You can find the show on social at RefocusPod, and you can email us directly, hello at RefocusPod.com. And like I said, I want to share these on the next episode, April 13th, so send them over now, please and thank you. And another note, after the episode on April 13th, we'll be back to our regularly scheduled Monday morning episodes on April 17th. And if you've subscribed to Refocus, you'll get each episode delivered right into your favorite podcast app every time we release a new episode. And here's where I also remind you, rating and reviewing is a free and easy way to support the work we're doing, as well as sharing our show on social media. And when you do, make sure to tag us at RefocusPod and at Lindsay Gensel. Refocused is a collaboration between me, Lindsay Gensel, and ADHD Online, a telemedicine mental health care company that provides affordable and accessible ADHD assessments and treatment plans, including medication management and teletherapy. A huge thanks to our managing editor, Sarah Platinitis, who was instrumental in building these conversations on sleep. She's the ying to my ADHD brain, Yang, and we're so lucky to have her on the team. Our coordinating producer, Phil Rodeman, does everything in his power to keep me on track. It is a monster responsibility, and I'm so happy he came out of retirement to give podcast life a go. Al Chaplin is our go-to for all things social media. Make sure to give it a like over at Refocus Pod. A big thanks to Mason Nelly over at Dexia in Grand Rapids, Michigan, for all of his help in getting our videos ready to share with you guys. 
Refocus couldn't happen without my partners turned friends at ADHD Online. High fives and hugs to the ones that I bug the most. Keith Boswell, Claudia Gotti, Melanie Mile, Suzanne Spruitt, Trisha Merchandunny, as well as the entire team at ADHD Online and Mentavi Health. I foolishly missed acknowledging them last week, but they need to get some credit for the incredible work that they did on our live panel audio, getting it ready for the podcast realm. Eric and Amanda Romani at EXR Sounds and Vision. I am so grateful to have sound engineers I trust that I can turn to. Thank you guys so much. Our show art is created by Sissy Yee of Berlin Gray, and our music was created by Louis Inglis, a singer-songwriter from Perth, Australia, who was diagnosed with ADHD in 2020 at the age of 39. Links to all of the partners we work with are available in the show notes. To connect with the show or with me, you can find us online at RefocusPod as well as at Lindsay Gensel. And you can email the show directly, hello at RefocusPod.com. That's hello at RefocusPod.com. Remember on the next show, we're continuing our conversation on sleep. And please, if you have some genius ADHD sleep hygiene hack, we would love to hear about it. Record a voice memo and send it to us on social media at RefocusPod or through email at RefocusPod.com. Take care of yourselves and please, in an effort to reduce the unbelievable amount of stress we all carry around with us unnecessarily, be a little kinder to yourself this week. 